you turn with me, please, to the seventh chapter of the Gospel of John? John chapter 7. Back to the thrilling days of yesteryear. As uh, the Lone Ranger used to begin, I realized that a lot of you weren't even alive back then. But uh, when I was a kid, we used to gather around in front of the uh, our super heterodyne radio on Saturday nights and listen to the adventures of the Lone Ranger as they took us back to the thrilling days of yesteryear. And I couldn't help but think as I read this uh, this past week that that's exactly what we're doing in the Gospel of John, going back to those days when God himself walked on the earth in the man Jesus Christ. And as we've been reading through John, we've been seeing this remarkable manifestation and revelation of the character of God in the person of Jesus. Now, one of the problems we have is that we live a long time after, uh, after the Incarnation, and it's hard for us to believe that it's real. If you're like me, very often you have doubts and uh, you wonder if it's all, uh, if it, is it authentic? Is it really something I can entrust myself to? Uh, it's a big risk, you know, you're, you're betting your life that what Jesus has to say is true and that only Jesus is true. That's uh, that's quite a risk. And if if you're normal, you probably have questions and doubts from time to time. I was fishing this past week with a friend over on the South Fork of the Boise, and and uh, it's one of those warm, memorable days that you have together with your friends. And afterward, we were sitting in his truck talking and and uh, praying together over some things. And and that was the question he raised. He's just a fairly new Christian and. He said, I, uh, I just, I don't, I just have times when I'm not sure it's for real. I don't know if it's authentic. How, how do you make the Lord real in, in your life? You talk about a relationship with Christ. How do you, how does that come about? So that you really know, you feel something, you sense that something is there. And that's what the passage is about this morning. That's the issue that we want to confront. Now, uh, chapter seven begins this way. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, as you know, this phrase, after these things, is John's marker for the various units of thought in the Gospel of John. And uh, the phrase this time introduces the longest section in the Gospel. Uh, It's a series of, of stories that uh, depict for us the growing antipathy of the Jews toward Jesus that culminated in his death. Uh, John summarizes for us somewhat when he says that they were seeking to kill him. That's what happened over the next few months. Actually, about six months intervened between chapter 6 and chapter 7. Jesus fed the 5,000, and then he continued to work miracles and to teach in Galilee up in the northern part of the land of uh, Palestine. But uh, he couldn't go down to Judea because time was running out for him there and, and the Jews in that part of, of Israel were, were seeking to kill him. And so he avoided Judea. But uh, a feast was coming up, one of three festivals uh, to which uh, Jews were, Jewish males were obligated to go. Three times a year they had to travel down to Jerusalem for a festival. And uh, this feast was coming up, the Feast of Tabernacles, which John says was at hand. His brothers uh, therefore said to him, Depart from here, 
And go into Judea, that your disciples also may behold your works, which you're doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. The Feast of Tabernacles was special. It was called uh, the Feast of Tabernacles because they built little uh, little tabernacles, little booths. It looked sort of like Adirondack uh, trail shelters. They would take uh, leaves and branches, tree branches, and build a little kind of a little tent, a little shelter on top of their house or out in the front yard, along the road, along the walls, around the walls of Jerusalem, and in some cases even in the courtyard of, of the temple. And they would camp out. It was sort of a combination family camp and, and a family reunion and uh, there was feasting and fellowship. It was just one of those joyous occasions in Israel. When pilgrims came from all over the ancient world, millions of them gathered in Jerusalem for this special occasion. And uh, his brothers uh, urged him to go down to the feast because they say, in essence, it pays to advertise. What, what are you doing up here in Galilee, keeping, uh, keeping this thing secret? Go down and manifest yourself. Let people know who you are. Work a few miracles down there. Make a big splash. And uh, they'll believe in you. It's one thing to convince these simple Galileans up here, these, these folk that, uh, that uh, haven't spent much time uh, being taught the Scriptures. It's another thing to go down and, and confront uh, official uh, Judaism, the officials down in Jerusalem. Why don't you go down there and work a miracle? And that will impress them and they'll know who you are. Well, it sounds like good advice. But uh, John makes it very clear that categorically they did not believe in him. These were the actions of unbelief. Uh, these brothers, we know, uh, their names were uh, James and Jude and Joseph and Simon, four of his brothers. He had a sister as well, at least one sister, perhaps more. These were children that Mary and Joseph had after the birth of Jesus. James and Jude uh, were the two who wrote the books of James and Jude in the New Testament who later came to believe on him. But at this point, they were not believers. So these, this was the action of unbelief. I couldn't help but think as I read this this past week that so often this is the way the church goes about making Christ known. Uh, it's through the actions of unbelief. We borrow the, the canny ways of the world, and uh, we try to make a big splash. We uh, organize committees, and we enlist large numbers of people, and we have media blitzes, and advertising campaigns, and we hire TV personalities and professional athletes to come and, and give a witness for Christ, and we somehow think we're going to make a big impact upon the world. But basically, we're just counting on ourselves. These are the actions of, un, of unbelief. Remember the question that was raised last week? How do you do the work of God? Jesus said, you do the work of, of God by continuing to believe on me. See, the problem is we don't really believe that Jesus knows best how to reach the world. And the best way to make him known is to make him known through your life. When, when his people, you and, and me and, and others around uh, this state and, the, and this and the world, really have a love for the Lord Jesus and, and we're exhibiting his character and we start moving through the world, displaying the grace and the pardon and the love and the kindness of our Lord Jesus, his compassion, people begin to listen. See, it's, as we begin to understand who we are in Christ and we begin to act out who we are in the world, 
and love people for His sake and give ourselves to them and share with them the power that's changed our lives, that's made us different, that people sit up and take notice. That's what makes them believe. We just don't believe that, you see. The way this... The city is going to be reached is as we go out as God's people, counting on Him, relying upon His strength, manifesting His character in the world. That's how. And uh, it just struck me as I read it that we really have not gotten too far. We still think in terms of making big splashes and, and doing things in a big way and making a big impression. See, they wanted Jesus to go down and work a miracle. Big miracle. Everybody would say, oh, yes, you're, you're, you're the one who's to come. But our Lord wouldn't do it. As a matter of fact, as he points out later, his glory was not to do a miracle, but it was to go to the cross. In John 12, he says, Now is the Son of Man glorified. Unless the seed falls into the ground and dies, it abides alone. But if it falls into the ground and dies, it brings forth much fruit. It was through that humbling of himself, the giving up of himself for the world, that he would be glorified. You see, that's God's way. That's always God's way. It's the way of the cross. Now, uh, Jesus rejected the suggestion according to verse 6. And uh, he tells them, My time is not yet at hand, but your time is always opportune. That is, you can do what you wish. You can come and go. You can go to Jerusalem. No one is out to kill you. But they're out to kill me because they hate me. And the reason they hate me, he says, is because I testify to the world that its deeds are evil. You can go and do your religious duty. You can read the Bible. You can go to church. You can say your prayers. You can go down to the festival, you see. But, but the world's not going to hate you because you're not saying anything to irritate them. You're not challenging their lifestyle by the way you live. You're not asking the right kind of questions. They're not going to hate you. But they hate me because I challenge the world's evil wherever I go. He did it graciously. But just his life itself was a great challenge to the darkness that was around him. And as you know, the, the world ended up hating him and putting him to death. In verse 8, he says, go, go on up to the feast. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to the feast because my time has not yet fully come. And having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. Now, it would appear from what follows that Jesus lied to them. Because uh, he says, I'm not going to go up, and then he, he ends up going. But uh, some of the uh, most ancient manuscripts have the little word yet inserted here after the phrase, I do not go up. And that's whether or not it belongs in the text, that was certainly his intention. I do not go up yet to the feast because my time has not yet come. Because he did show up covertly. He didn't, he didn't immediately make his presence known. But uh, a few days after the feast began, he, uh, he, he traveled from Galilee down to, to Judea. Verse 10, When his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as it were in secret. The Jews were seeking uh, him at the feast and were saying, Where is he? This wasn't idle curiosity. Uh, whenever John uses this term, seek him, he means seek him to kill him. These Jews were the official representatives of Judaism, not the run-of-the-mill garden-variety Jew that was gathered there at the, at the feast, but, but rather the officials, the rabbis, the teachers, the leaders, the priests, the clergy, we would say. They were seeking to kill him, and, uh, but they couldn't find him. The rumor spread that he was there somewhere in the city 
And the whole town was buzzing with discussion about him, but uh, they couldn't find him. There were uh, there was much grumbling that is low under, undercurrent of discussion among the multitudes concerning him. Some were saying he's a good man. Others were saying no, on the contrary, leads the multitude astray. So the population of Jerusalem was polarized over Christ. And that's all, you're all, find that's always true. People have to make up their mind one way or the other. And in this case, some of the people were saying, this is a good man. We need to pay attention to what he's saying. Others were saying, no, he leads people astray, which has an ominous ring to it because to lead people astray was a capital crime in Israel. The, the, the Talmud, the teaching of the rabbis, prohibited it. Uh, he was a deceiver. He could have been stoned to death. So things were very tense in the city. That's the idea. Everybody was talking about Jesus. They were saying, I think I saw him yesterday. He's in the crowd somewhere. But they weren't sure. A lot of discussion going on. But they were afraid to bring it out in the open because uh, the secret police were everywhere. Verse 14. When it was now the midst of the feast, sometime in the middle of the week, the feast was a seven-day feast with a special eighth day at the end. We'll talk about that day uh, next week. When it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews, therefore, were marveling, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? I'd love to have been a little mouse in the corner that day, church mouse, I suppose, and uh, and, and listen to Jesus teach. Uh, there was a large uh, open uh, porch area called Solomon's Portico with... Uh, Granite pillars, about 35 feet high, with cedar beams across the top, and it shaded the people. And the rabbis would gather in Solomon's porch and get on their soapboxes and teach. And sometimes there'd be three or four of them at one time holding forth. People would gather around and listen for a while and ask questions, and then they'd go off to another rabbi. And apparently Jesus uh, put his soapbox up, and he got on it, and he began to teach. I would just love to have been there and heard it. We're not told what he said. Nothing of the content of this discourse is given. But he taught in such a way that, that John says people were amazed at his insight into, into human uh, character and into the problems that people have to face. His uncanny way of, of resolving our difficulties. And they were astonished at his wisdom. Because he, he, he had not studied... Under a rabbi, that's the point. You see, in uh, in Judaism, you didn't go to school in an official sense. You didn't go to seminary to be a rabbi. You studied under a rabbi. A rabbi would gather five or six bright young men around him, and he would transmit his information to them. While we were in Israel, those of us that traveled to Israel in March, we went down to uh, the the uh, wall, the western wall, on uh, the eve of Shabbat, just before the Sabbath. And uh, uh, down through the crowd came a rabbi with, with his uh, disciples. And they were dancing. They were linked together, uh, dancing together as they came through the crowd. Just fascinating to, to watch them. And then they would gather around him and he would read something out of the, out of the Talmud. He would discourse on it on a, bit and, uh, a bit and they would listen to him. Well, that's, that's the way Jews have always been taught. That's the way the rabbis taught. And uh, they realized that Jesus had not studied under a rabbi. Now, the way the rabbis taught was to teach what the rabbis taught. They would teach the traditions of the rabbis. 
Have you ever seen a page out of the Talmud? That's the, this, I mentioned it before, this encyclopedic collection of all rabbinic teaching. In the center, you have a very large section, which is the interpretation of certain ancient rabbis, usually pre-Christian rabbis. They go way, way back into the second, third century before Christ. Their interpretation of the Old Testament. And then you have a, a column on the left-hand side that is the interpretation or correction of this rabbi's interpretation of Scripture. And you have another column on the other side, which is a commentary on the commentary on the commentary. And you have footnotes at the bottom that are commentaries on the commentary on the commentary on the commentary. So that they didn't really discuss the Bible. What they did was discuss what the rabbi said. Rabbi Hillel says so-and-so. Rabbi Yugal says so-and-so, see? But when Jesus taught, he didn't quote anybody. That's what startled them. He didn't quote his rabbi. He didn't say Rabbi Shammai says so-and-so. He said God says so-and-so. And very often he didn't even quote the Old Testament. He taught with authority as it's put elsewhere in the Gospel of John. That's what amazed them, you see. Where did this man get this learning? And actually what they're saying is, what right does he have to teach with this sort of authority? Now, uh, Jesus answers them in verse 16. My teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. In other words, he's saying, I got my teaching directly from God. I received a direct revelation from God. He who sent me refers to God the Father. Uh, he says, I, I wasn't instructed by any rabbi. God himself taught me. Now, you have to realize how audacious that is and how much authority that gives Jesus if it's true. Some years ago, a uh, uh, fellow Christian told me that he was taken into the very presence of God. And uh, God went all the way through the New Testament and interpreted every passage of Scripture in the New Testament to him. And uh, I said, well, uh, that's very interesting. I said, do you realize that that gives you absolute authority? No one can ever question anything you say. They can never question your interpretation of Scripture. Because you have you have a divinely inspired interpretation of the Scripture, and I, and I, I said, Paul said that we only know in part, and, and so that really makes you unique. There's no one like you. You see. Now, now see, that's what Jesus is saying. That that he has received his instruction from God Himself. It's not mine, but the one who sent me. Now, the the question is, how do we know? How do we know that Jesus is right? It's one thing to make that claim. Uh, anyone can claim anything they want to. And people from time to time have claimed uh, to have special authority. They've claimed to, to have been taken into God's presence and received a revelation. Or they saw God in their room. God appeared to them in a wood and uh, and communicated truth to them. And, and the question is, how do we know? How do we test it out? How can we be sure that this is authentic and, and real? Well, the Lord goes on. He gives us a test. This is the way uh, a man or a woman can know that Jesus' teaching is from God. Verse 17. If any man 
is willing to do His will. If any man or woman is willing to do God's will, he shall know of the teaching whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. And we say, now wait a minute, that's backward from everything I've ever been taught. We've been taught seeing is believing. We're very empirical here in the West. We, we need some evidence up front. Jesus says, there isn't any evidence up front. You want to know if it's for real? And start doing what he asks you to do. It's just that simple. Are you unsure that God even exists? Then begin to read through the Gospel of John and do what Jesus tells you to do. Repent of your sin. And come to Him for forgiveness. And see what happens. You'll know. I can't tell you how you'll know. But you'll know. I can guarantee you that. You'll know. Are you having problems with the reality of Christ? Are you just unsure that it's all authentic and real? Then begin to do what He asks you to do. Instead of being so critical of other people, take the beam out of your own eye. Sit in judgment on your own life first, you see. And then you begin to know. If, if He tells you to, to tell the truth, even though it, it, it's going to hurt you to do so, then do it. If He tells you to stick with your marriage, and He does, regardless of the pressures, and you do it, then you'll know. See? You'll know. That's always the way it is. You don't know up front. You know when you obey. That's the same thing that the Lord said to uh, to Moses. Uh, Moses was sent back to Egypt, as you know, to set God's people free. And Moses had all sorts of problems with that command. He didn't think he was adequate. He didn't think he was sufficiently learned or, uh, or equipped. And uh, he said, how will I know that you've sent me? And the Lord says, when you get back to this mountain, Mount Sinai, where the revelation was given, where he was told to go to Egypt, when you get back to this mountain, you'll know. In other words, when, if, you go, if you just do what I tell you to do, you go back to Egypt, and you make that declaration to Pharaoh, and you follow me through that whole process and obey me, I'll get you back here to this mountain, and when you get back to the mountain, you'll say, oh, it works. He's real. And that's the way it works. We'd like it the other way, but it can't be the other way. We know as we obey. So just start doing what He asks you to do. Jesus put it another way when He said, He that has My commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves Me. And he that loves Me will be loved by My Father. And we will love Him and make ourselves real to Him. You see? What has He told you to do? Well, if you love Him, you'll do it. And when you do it, He'll make Himself real to you. There is that thing that Paul calls the witness of the Spirit that I cannot explain. It's not subjective. It's not some feeling. It's the internal witness of the Spirit that makes it real when we begin to do what He's called us to do. Now, that's Jesus' answer. I didn't think that up. He says, if you want to know, if you're willing to do my will, or God's will, you'll know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true and there is no unrighteousness in him. In other words, not only will you come to me, but, but you'll glorify the Father. That's what I long to do. 
It says is bring glory to Him. I don't want to seek glory for myself. I don't want to put myself in the spotlight. I'm not trying to... I don't want to sidetrack you. I want to lead you on to God, you see. My desire is simply to seek His His glory. Now, uh, verse 19 seems to be uh, unrelated to what precedes it. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? And uh, we read that and ask, what what does that have to do with, with what he's been talking about? Well, essentially what he's doing is what he said he must do, what he told his brothers he must do. He has to point out to the world that it's evil. Now, now understand, Moses gave Israel the law. And they all agreed that Moses was the prophet par excellence. God spoke to Moses. Nobody had any question about that. He had authority that was derived from God. And Moses said, uh, Moses gave them the law. And the sixth commandment in the law is thou shalt not murder. And Jesus said, why are you trying to murder me? If you were really subject to God, then you wouldn't want to kill me. You see, because that's contrary to the law. What he's doing is pointing out the evil in their own hearts as he is consistently doing with us. One of the reasons we don't grow, one of the reasons we don't have assurance of our salvation is because there's evil in our hearts. And the, and, the, and the Lord, through the Word, constantly points that out to us. One of the Beatitudes says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You want to see God? You want to believe that He is he's real? Then you have to ask Him to purify your heart. You, you have to be willing to deal with the sin and the deceitfulness and the violence and the ugliness of, of, of the heart, you see? Because when we don't deal with sin, we don't grow. And when we don't deal with sin, we aren't assured. We lose the assurance of our salvation. And we lose a desire to read the Word. And a hunger to know God. That's what Peter means when he says, putting aside all malice and wrath and anger, as, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the Word. The most natural thing in the world is for a child to desire food, desire milk. If they lose their appetite, you know they're sick. And that's what Peter is saying. There are little spiritual microbes at work, malice and, and guile and, and sin. And when those are there, you lose your appetite for the Word. And your vision of God is obscured. So you, you just have to be willing to deal with sin. You see? And our Lord, as He did here with the Jews is very gracious to point out the evil in our hearts so we can deal with it so that the assurance of our salvation comes back and so we can go on in our knowledge of God. We've all known people that that uh, seem to grow very rapidly. Uh, they become a Christian and, and they just take giant steps. And then there are others that, that just seem to lag behind. They never grow up. They're, they're always a little bit immature and and uh, emotional and, and childish and unstable. And we wonder, what's wrong with them? They've, they've all been exposed to... Te- both, been, both classes have been exposed to teaching. And uh, I've seen people who are involved in Bible studies and, and uh, who know a great deal about the Word, and yet they never seem to grow. Why? Well, because they've never been willing to submit their hearts to the truth. Paul talks about 
certain women that he calls little women. Now, he's not saying all women are like that. He could just very well talk about little men. But because this particular context, he's talking about women. He calls them little women, immature, childish women, who are always learning, he says, and they're never able to come to the truth. Why? Well, because they they don't obey the truth that they're learning. They go. They're involved in Bible study fellowship. They're involved in women's Bible studies. They uh, they 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 read good books about the Bible, but they never seem to grow up. Why? Because they aren't willing to submit to it. You see. And when you when you begin to submit, then you begin to grow. I have a a friend, dear friend, I haven't seen in years. His name is Don McLean. He was a a principal of a high school. Uh, in Menlo Park, California, for years. He came to Christ through Young Life, the ministry of Young Life Crusade. Uh, the, the kids, as they met the Lord, would drop by his office and share their faith with him. And uh, after, after a while, he, he accepted Christ himself. And after he'd been a Christian a few months, so one day we happened to be together, and, and he said, listen, would you be willing to meet with me one day a week and teach me the Bible? I said, I don't know anything about the Bible. Would, would you just teach me? And I said, sure. So we met in a a little ice cream parlor in Los Altos, California, for one whole summer. And uh, we'd just go through passages of Scripture. He didn't know a thing. And we'd read a passage and talk about it, and we'd go on to another passage and talk about it. And uh, the thing that I noticed is that his, his perception of spiritual truth was growing, that he would look at a passage, and his understanding of that passage became more profound every time we got together. And within a matter of a few months, he was teaching a, a Bible study of adults that had probably 100 to 150 people in it, expounding on the Scriptures. And he'd only been a Christian uh, less than a year when he was doing that. And everyone marveled at the wisdom this man had. And it wasn't because he was particularly intelligent or perceptive. It was because he was obedient. His attitude to the Word was, show me what to do, and by God's grace, I'll do it. And it wasn't that he did it perfectly, but that was the inclination of his heart. And because he was obedient, he was subject to the Word. He was growing. And Christ was real to him. You could see the radiance of Christ in his life and on his face. Now that's what John is saying. That's what our Lord is saying in this discourse. You want to make it real? All of us, me, you? Then we need to to submit ourselves to his Word. Now, uh, the reaction of the people in verse 20 is to deny that they sought to kill him. You have a demon, they said. You're demented. You're paranoid. Who's seeking to kill you? Jesus answered and said to them, I did one deed, you all marvel. On this account, Moses has given you circumcision. Not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. In other words, uh, uh, he's saying actually circumcision goes back to the time of the patriarchs, to Abraham and the fathers. But for sake of argument, let's assume that Moses gave you circumcision. Because they all agreed that Moses, again, was the, was the prophet. Par excellence. Greatest prophet uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, Moses has given you circumcision. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, that is, superficially. Don't make superficial judgments, but judge with righteous judgment, that is, be discerning. Now, this is a very difficult passage, and I'm I'm not sure I understand it, but let me tell you what I think is going on here. 
Um, they, they, uh, they say, we're not trying to kill you. Jesus says, in effect, yes, you are. Yes, you are. Now, let me give you an example. You remember the one miracle that I did in Jerusalem. Now, you may have done others, but John only records one. And that's the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath. Remember? He healed the man. This is in John 5. He healed the man on the Sabbath. And they did not see the significance of that healing because they hung up on the fact that he did it on the Sabbath. That turned them off. He healed a man on the Sabbath. They didn't see that that was a sign that he was the Messiah. It troubled them that just the fact that he did it on the Sabbath. And therefore, they thought he broke the law. Now, he says, I did one deed, and you marvel. Therefore, the, uh, the, 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 the next uh, series of texts begins with that little conjunction. Therefore, Moses gave you circumcision. Now, here's what I think he's saying. That law, the law of circumcision in the Old Testament, and the particular way it was formulated, was actually put into the law to keep you from doing what you did with reference to my healing. You understand the argument? I did one deed on the Sabbath, and uh, you discounted it because it was done on the Sabbath. Therefore, Moses gave you the law of circumcision. Now, you should have read the law more carefully, he's saying. You should have been thinking when you read the law, because it would have prevented you from making that mistake. Why? Well, because according to law, a little boy was circumcised on the eighth day. And it's inevitable, then, that some child would have to be circumcised on the Sabbath. You see, you could very well have said, with reference to the law of circumcision, the first day after the first Sabbath after the child is born, you can circumcise him, and that avoids the conflict. But there was a conflict written into the law. Inevitably, some child would have to be circumcised on the Sabbath. And if you did that act on the Sabbath, Certainly it's all right for me to heal a man on the Sabbath. You see? You see? Now what he's saying is that Moses put that into the law, or God directed Moses to put that into the law so you wouldn't make that mistake, so you wouldn't approach the law with, with this kind of hard, rigid, legalistic, legal approach to things, but that you would rather look at me and observe what I did and learn from me and let that lead you to God. You see? Because the issue is not coming to God through the law. It's taking a good, hard look at Jesus and going on to God from Him. You see? That's what he's saying. Now, I, I, this has all kinds of ramifications for us as Christians. You want it to be real in your life? Then, then just look at Jesus and do what He says. Don't quibble with Him. Don't argue with Him. Even if it doesn't seem like the right thing to do. He speaks with the authority of God. Just do what he says, even though it hurts, even though it may, may mean lonely nights and, and difficult days. Just, just do what he says. And if you do, then he'll become more real to you. He'll give you the grace to do it. He'll forgive you when you fail, and he'll make himself real to you. See? Now, that's true of Christians. It's also true of non-Christians. If you're having trouble believing it all, if it all seems like a bunch of rigmarole, and you can't put it all together. How can three be one? How can one one thing be three? And how could Jesus talk to His Father up there when He's God 
Who's minding the store when God's down here on the earth? And we tend to hang up on all these questions. What about the people who never heard about Jesus? And they're just, they're just hang-ups for us. That's all. We trip over them. And uh, they can keep us from God. Now, there are answers to all of these things. As Calvin says, apologetics are secondary aids to our imbecility. And, you know, they, there are some explanations and they kind of help us along in our faith. But, but basically, what builds faith is just coming to the Lord, taking a good hard look at Him, and doing what He asks you to do. I just, I just had the greatest conversation this past week with a young man. One of our women in the church has been sharing Christ with him over the last few weeks. Three months ago, he was an atheist. And uh, now at least he knows, as he put it, that there's somebody somebody out there. And uh, she gave him a copy of C.S. Lewis's uh, Mere Christianity to read. He's been reading that. He's moving closer and closer. But he's just full of questions. He's a very bright young man. He has a lot of questions that he can't answer. And I said, look, don't, don't hang up on the questions. Everybody's had them. Thoughtful Christians for 1,900 years have struggled with these questions. Don't let them keep you from God. Read the Gospel of John. Just start reading the Gospel of John. And say, God, I don't even know if you're up there. Or where you are. Or who you are. Or what you are. I just want to know you. And then just start reading it. And whatever He tells you to do, do it. And you'll know. You'll know. I can't tell you how you'll know. But you'll know. Let's pray. Now, this morning, we want to come symbolically to our Lord and eat and drink of Him. Remember last week, we talked about this metaphor that our Lord uses, that of eating His flesh and drinking His blood. And uh, as we discovered, he was speaking symbolically of coming and believing on him. It's something we do every day, every moment of every day. We keep coming and we keep believing. But occasionally we set aside times to, uh, in obedience to him, to eat and drink symbolically of him around around his table. He, gathered the disciples in the upper room and he took a piece of bread and he said, this is my body. Symbolically, my body, which is for you. And this is my blood. He took the cup and he said, this is my blood, which is shed for you, the blood of the new covenant, the blood that ratifies the new covenant. And his disciples then in symbol ate and drank of, of him. But that's not the reality. The reality goes on. This is just a way of remembering. So, as we gather to take, eat this bread and take this cup, let's remember what it symbolizes, that daily coming to Him, looking to Him for life, strength, sustenance, for wisdom, purity, for everything that we need. Lord, we come in that spirit this morning, remembering Your death until You come. Give us a worshipful heart. Take away the distractions in our minds and center us upon You now as we celebrate this table together. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.